cliffcentral.com. Well, Candice Bushnell is the critically acclaimed international best-selling author of no less than 10 books, and she continues to impress. She's got a one-man show, which is just unbelievable. Um, she has written for all the big newspapers. She's been on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, she received the Legacy Award at the Glamour Women of the Year Awards and so many others. I mean, it's just such a pleasure to have her here because she's also the brains behind Sex and the City, which is probably one of the most successful <laughs> ideas. It's not even a, just a TV show. Ideas in the modern world and what it's done for women and relationships and what it hasn't done for women and relationships. <laughs> these are all things we've got to discuss. It is so great to have you here. And the real Carrie Bradshaw. I mean, that's that's who you are, right? This character I was... CBCB? Yes, yes. The character was my alter ego for reasons that I explain <laughs> on my one woman show. Right, True so tales of sex, success, and sex in the So city. let's say this right up front because Candace is doing this show, which you can get tickets for at showtime.co.za and ticketmaster.co.za. It's Johannesburg on the 23rd of September. That's this Saturday. Uh, there are two shows, and in Cape Town on the 30th of September. Also two shows are going to be sold out. I'm pretty sure they will. Um, and you tell all the behind-the-scenes stories, huh? You get into a like – A few. Okay. A few. I, yeah? I, I tell the story of how I created Sex in the City, how hard I worked to get there, why I invented Carrie Bradshaw, and what happened to me afterward. And I play a little game with the audience, real or not real, because <laughs> so many things that happened in the TV show happened in my real life, but they're either better or worse. Wow. Which um, is annoying. And Matthew McConaughey <laughs> is one of the questions, <laughs> as is a hot Calvin Klein underwear model. Well, so I mean, you've had an- So I would say, ladies, brush up on your sex in the city. You're going to need to remember every episode. Okay, so this is a Well, just thing, a couple, really. But this is a thing from the 90s, okay? And it's not too much to say that this transformed the way TV treated women and the way that women's relationships were portrayed on TV. Because up to then, it was, without being unkind to those TV shows that had come before, it was a little bit patronizing, Yes. Um, well, you, you changed that. I mean, the, the producers of the show, but your work, your columns gave them the material to be able to tell those stories far more truthfully. Yes. And one of the things that one realizes about TV is that, you know, in general, really up until kind of, you know, the mid-aughts, TV is a very male-oriented business. Mm. I mean, it is run by men. Um, it's written by men, largely. M maybe not so much anymore. I mean, a lot of the now executives it's, now, it's, yeah. It has, it's changed. But at that time, it wasn't. Yes, right? it's, changed yeah. a, it's changed a lot in the last 15 years. Um, maybe 20, 20 years, I would say. But, you know, Sex and the City was one of the first original TV shows that was on HBO. It was Arliss and then Sex and the City and then The Sopranos. So in some ways, Sex and the City really contributed to making HBO such a big brand. And, I, you know, I, I, I will say that you know, there were no TV writers in Hollywood that who could ever have come up with Sex in the City. Um, you know, their portrayals of women tended to be, you know, they were written by men and they were pretty cliched. You know, men's ideas of what women should be like, which is something that I do talk a little bit about in my one-woman show um, as being – you know, part of the inspiration for writing Sex in the City in the first place, writing about women the way we really are as opposed to some man's idea of what we should be like. And, you know, that was what really started selling, you know, selling newspapers in the New York Observer, which is where the column Sex in the City first appeared. 
And I think it's also a big deal that it was New York because women in New York are also very different to women anywhere else. Well, being that, a being a woman in New York is different. That was really one of the things that I set out to document in the column Sex in the City. And I I'd, I'd lived in New York since 1977 and I started writing about women in New York pretty much immediately and I I wrote for women's magazines and I wrote about basically mating and dating <laughs> rituals and you know where money power and sex intersect in a place like New York City and New York City at that time felt like one of the few places where women could be successful where women could actually earn enough money so that they could survive on their own but you know even in the 80s that was iffy i mean there's there are a whole bunch of reasons why sex in the city came to be there was a lot of uh, financial things that were happening and social things that were happening uh, that really starting in the early 80s when women were going to college for one of the first times, not necessarily to get their MRS, which was their misses. They were actually going to college to get a degree. And then in the early 80s, there was a huge influx of women into the workforce. Yeah. Um, and this was one of the first times in history. It happened again back in the 1920s when we had the rise of the flapper, which was, you know, this woman was called the flapper, but she was, she was an independent woman who could earn her own money and could therefore control her own sex life. And so this again was a similar situation. You know, part of it has to do with where's the economy? You know, if the economy is really good and men are making a lot of money, then women aren't going to the office so much. They're not working quite as much. But they have the choice, which is something well, that didn't exist Well, in the 80s, before. there was, you know, yeah. we advanced a little bit. Feminine advanced a little, feminism advanced a little bit. So in the 80s, there were a lot of women in the workforce and people didn't really know what to do. What were the rules? Yeah. Was there office dating? Right. Um, you know, there was the commitment crisis where, you know, all of a sudden men didn't want to make commitments the way they once did. And what happened was in the 90s, in the early 90s, all of those women who had had careers in the 80s, still hadn't gotten married and were independent women and were a little bit more successful. And suddenly their sex lives looked a little bit different than what men assumed women's sex lives should look like. Um, and hence that was sex in the city. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've just sketched the whole thing beautifully and it was, it was your, this was your baby. You, you saw something there that, and you understood something, you were able to explain it to other people the way you just have now, which hadn't happened before. I mean, a lot has changed since then. I mean, now I think it's, uh, you know, 60% of graduates are women. Yes. Now um, there are a lot more women who are deciding to actually opt out of the workforce, even though they, they are hugely successful. They're like, I'm getting out of here. I don't like this as much. They have the option, though, of staying in. Well, uh, those women... That happens to be a small percentage of women. Usually the women who went to Ivy League schools have degrees and met a very, you know, a very successful man. Yeah. I mean, in amongst <laughs> the 1%, and, you know, this is, this is a bit of an issue and a bit of a problem, but amongst the 1%, less than 5% of that 1% are women who made their own money. Most of the women who are in the 1% are married to a very wealthy man. So the more money a man has, the more sexist that world is. Now, when you go down to the 50%, 
you'll find that there's a much higher proportion of women who are the breadwinners, and that might even be 50%. So it's, it's, it's really very specifically about a, a, a small portion of society. Do you think that women are happier now or that they were happier in the 90s? And I mean generally. It's a, it's a, you've got a barometer on this stuff, which is why you can write as beautifully as you can. And you can explain the kinds of feelings that weren't portrayed before you started telling stories like Sex in the City. Do you think that, first of all, I, I can pretty much guarantee men are not happier than they were in the 90s. I mean, we've got, you know. Porn. Porn. We, absolutely. We've got porn, high suicide rates, uh, um, huge amounts of, of marital infidelity. And, and that was always there. So I'm not going to pretend that that's new. But men are undoubtedly more unhappy and particularly single men are more unhappy than they've ever been. Are, are do you, you married? Do you think that's true for women? No, I, I'm not married, but right. I, I happen to be one of the few happily single people. And I'm genuine. <laughs> I know you right. in your 50s became single again, and it like gave you a new lease on life, which is part of the show as well. Yes, it, yes, it did. Which, which I want to talk about in a little bit. But do you think men are, are – do you want to disagree with me about men being unhappy? And then what do you think it's done to women? Because the 90s were also a special time. I mean – I well, think there was a lot of lightness about things. Yes. Everything wasn't so heavy and so serious and so consequential and political. Um, yes. That's changed. Yes. I mean, it's changed enormously. And, and I mean, f I, to me, I think the biggest change overall for everybody is the internet, the cell phone, and social yeah, media. Absolutely. And pornography is a huge, huge factor. And uh, I mean, there was a feeling in the 90s that, first of all, you did not feel like you were being spied on and tracked. You know, there were no cell phones. You mm. could go out at night. Mm. Um, you know, there wasn't this obsession with screens and yeah. television. Yes. I, I mean, in New York, I didn't even own a TV, I think, until 1998, and that was only because of Sex in the City. I thought, I got to get a TV because I've got to watch this. <laughs> um, but it was really about people were interacting, and real life felt more interesting than, you know, than anything that you would find on TV or on screen and there was people had real connections too and well i mean candace like let's just talk about dating for a second because that's a big part of what sex in the city was yes and it's a big part of being a woman in new york in the 90s dating was like and there was an art to it there were first of all a million places you could go a million yes. ways you could do dating it wasn't like you know the small town kind of idea of you have to go to the movies or a dance or whatever and new york in, in the 90s, dating as a single woman who also might have been the breadwinner or might have been certainly self-sufficient, was able to stand on her own two feet and make her way in New York, buy the things she wanted to buy, didn't need to re depend on her dad, her brother, her husband, her boyfriend. Right. This there was a – and I used to feel in the 90s, you know, being – a single woman. And in fact, it led to other books that I wrote, like Lipstick Jungle, which was mm. was really about the super powerful women I knew in New York who had each other's backs when it came to business, just like the men did. You know, New York was a real woman's town. Yeah. And I used to feel in the 90s that being a woman in New York in the 90s was probably one of the best places to be a woman in the world and in, in human history. history right in history i mean there was so much independence um there was lots of female camaraderie uh you you really you felt like you could kind of say like you know bug off to the man <laughs> in a sense yeah and and it was it was a terrific time and now i, I mean I, I, think, I think we've gone backwards a little bit and and yes, it's partly yes i think so too do you okay because like dating for example 
in New York, and the first time I'd ever been. Well, let's in- just say, let's say dating everywhere, because I've yeah. I oh yeah I conduct my informal surveys, and you know I've already talked to a couple of women here, and I already know the whole story with dating here, and it's exactly the same as it is in New York and every place else. But because of swiping left and right, some somehow some of the magic's been taken out. That that there was an art to this, and especially in a competitive environment like New York, right, where you have a lot of men and a lot of women, and they're they're trying to meet each other. And there was a way to socially engage, which was a skill. It was something that was learned, especially by those powerful women that you're talking about. They had to operate at a certain level, not just to snare the right guy or to meet the right people, to be friends with the right in crowd. I mean, New York's hugely competitive. It's the center of the world. And now it's all on screens and it's so like blasé. And frankly, people are sitting around in ugly clothes in their apartment just trying to hook up. It seems a bit depressing to me compared to that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you think? Well, I don't know if I would quite describe it that way. Um, I I think I think what's missing is the romance of of dating is missing, and where you felt like you could go out anywhere and you could meet somebody at the supermarket, you could meet somebody, you know, in line for the movies. You you really literally could meet somebody anywhere. So there was that romance. Mm. And and then there was also you know people people could make commitments in ways that they don't seem to be able to do now. I mean there's almost no momentum and and I I did write a book called Is There Still Sex in the City and I did a whole story on Tinder dating. And one of the things that's really the big difference between dating now and dating back in the 80s and the 90s is dating now, people seem to have 90% bad experiences. Mm. Whereas dating in the 80s and 90s, yeah, there were a couple of bad experiences, but overall it was pretty good. You you actually could meet somebody. There was romance. If things didn't work out, you would feel like, well, it was meant to be. And, you know, we met for a reason and we were in each other's lives for a reason. Oh. Now there seems to be sort of no reason except that I'm going to end up being hurt and I'm going to end up being rejected. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of people presenting themselves, uh, in an untruthful kind of way. Um, I am guilty of that, I have to say, on some dating apps. Uh, (laughs) I lie about my age because I have to. Um, But there's also, oddly, a feeling of no time. You know, there's no time to develop a relationship. And I have a... I mean, sometimes I'll have like, you know, two dates in a week. And I've dated people from 25 years old to 91. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've dated the gnarly 65-year-old and the, you know, maybe once attractive 77-year-old. And, you know, it makes no difference it still always seems to be like one date. It's sort of like one and done. Wow. And everybody is, There's not they're the, moving um, on to the next. The consequence, the, the consistency, the the effort being made that was once pay, perhaps part of the deal, right? And, well, and it was an adventure. It's very, it was like, it's very hard, I think, to find that spark. And I have to say, I'm guilty of it as well. Uh, you know, when people say, what are you looking for? It's like, I just want to find somebody I have a connection with. But isn't this also partly because, and I, I really didn't want to turn this discussion because you, you have so much interesting stuff in your head that I want to find out about. But I don't want to just focus on this idea of men and women and 
relationships and dating, but it it's so integral to the way that people feel about their lives, right? You feel good about your life if you have good relationships. And they, they published a study the other day that longevity is based more on the important relationships you have in your life than your fitness, not drinking too much, smoking too much, doing drugs, all that stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's right at the center of what most people consider to be a purpose and a meaning and a, a reason to, to be happy. Um, when you think about these stories of people going on one date and then not seeing each other again, is there a part of it that's about getting to know each other and now, because of the internet and everything else, there's so much information about everybody that you don't really need to get to know them because you're going to look at their LinkedIn, their Facebook, their Instagram, and you've seen who they've been with over the last six months. You can tell if there was a boyfriend. You could tell if yes. there was a wedding that they went to together. You could tell who her parents are, what they look like. Suddenly, there's no mystery. Well... I think that mystery is highly overrated. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, this whole thing of like, be mysterious. Why? Like, what are you hiding? I mean, usually people well, who are mysterious. I mean, the, the game of getting to know somebody, not necessarily being mysterious. Let me change that thing. Right. Because I agree with you. Like, mis like if you are, are, are purposefully trying to be mysterious, you're a pain in the backside. Who yeah. Has a, who has There's, the time it's for like that, you're, right? You probably – like a psycho psychopath right. or something. Right, and, and who wants to play those games incessantly? It's uh, What I'm talking about is the that interaction where you first meet somebody and you're like, oh, wow, I'm really intrigued by this person. Now I want to spend time getting – the time you were talking about, right. time getting to know them. And I want by the end of this to have discovered things that both excite me even more about the, the, whoever it is and things that are like weird and wacky and slightly – eccentric and different that make them stand out from all the other people I've met in my life? There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> well, go um, ahead. I mean, it's like I'm know, sitting I, with my I mean, shrink. Well, first of all, <laughs> I am definitely guilty of Googling. Okay. And my feeling is if you see me on a dating app and you don't Google me, dude, that's dumb, okay? Because you... And I assume that anybody who, you know, connects with me and and wants to get together, they've Googled me, and that's fine. I want them to know something about who I am and what I'm about. So I don't actually have a problem with that. I mean, I am guilty of I will Google people and find out where their house is <laughs> or their apartment in New York, that and tells what you a it's lot, worth. right? Yeah, tells okay. you a lot. Sure. <laughs> so, and and it's just, I mean, to me, it's just information. But you know, the person in person, I think, supersedes you know any of those facts of information in terms of making a connection. Um, so. I don't know that it is all those things that you said. It's like LinkedIn and we have so much information. On the other hand, I think that you're right in the sense that there's a lot of junctures where we can say, you know what? Not for me. Yeah. You can climb off easily. You know, you can. Yeah. Yes, you can climb yeah. off really easily. I mean, there was one guy who I, I liked – you know, quite a bit. He's from New Jersey. I don't know what the equivalent of that is here. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, Got you. it's perfectly fine. And there were lots of pictures of, you know, him with his family, a very big extended family. Right. And they didn't look that great. And I had to say to myself, <laughs> do I really want to spend Thanksgiving with these people? Probably not. So it put you off straight away. And, and you know, and that put me off. And you know what? That is wrong, Gareth. <laughs> but who has the time? It's wrong. Okay, but who has the time? So, And I, this guy is, he's great. I hear you talking. And again, I'm just reminded of these characters that come from the TV show, right? And there's a bit of Samantha talking to me now. There's a little bit yes. of Carrie. There's a little bit of Charlotte. And there's a little bit of Miranda. And I think... 
probably you have all of those people living in your head all the time. And it's not to say you're schizophrenic, <laughs> but it is to say that a lot of people are not just one thing, right? No, they are, are not. We all have different elements. And especially women are governed far more, and it sounds like such a sexist thing, but we know it's true, like by their feeling than men are. Men are like... Well, uh, darling, that's only until you go through menopause. Well, then guess what? When you got no you get hormones, as hell. you... You are not guided by your feelings. You're you, just like a man. What, you're guided by logic. Call the, Although, dead, no, call the dead on the men, inside. <laughs> men are actually the ones who are much more guided by their hormones. That testosterone is hormones, a problem. Hormones, yeah. I'm not going to disagree with you. But you could feel like, what I'm trying to get at is you could feel like Charlotte. You could feel like Miranda. You could feel like Samantha. You could feel like uh, Carrie. On any given day, it could change. Like you could be all four in a space of 24 hours, right? Yes. But- a lot of the time, those characteristics are all just part of what makes you the person you are. And embracing them and kind of getting comfortable with them is a good thing. I think a lot of women were only given permission to know that they could do that by columns like yours, by the show eventually, by, by books that have been written since the 80s, 90s, where women have realized, oh, okay, I, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm allowed to be like Samantha and be the sex machine and just look for the fun and have a good time and be totally emotional if I want to be. And then I can be the more staid, serious, conservative kind of Charlotte character. And I can also be this glamorous, sexy, carry character. All of those are possible. I don't have to just be the one thing. Yes, that's true. But I, I think more important than that is Sex in the City gave women permission to be themselves and to be self-actualized. And, you know, at the beginning, the message of Sex in the City was not about finding a man. No. And, you know, for me, my message has always been be your own Mr. Big because so many women, they're attracted to men who sort of embody a lot of the things that they personally want but feel like society isn't doesn't allow them to to be do you still which is think, ambitious do you still think that's, and do you still think that's sexual. a thing i think it's less true but it's still it's still true i mean i think that's one of the reasons why so many young women are on social media and they're you know, they're more upset and depressed than we used to be because there's, you know, the message that women are still getting is in some ways men are more valuable than women. Women are kind of secondary and you have to look a certain way to get a man. And but that's not what the media – I mean, media is just giving us stories about – Women being independent, being strong. Women have got more role models now than they've yes. ever had. That is, and, that and is the, true. And the way but, the media social portrays, media, though, they still, they still get that message. Well, well the social media is then the mirror that we're holding up to ourselves. But what I'm getting at is that, you know, the characters in movies, the powerful women who are portrayed as presidents or whatever else, and that is really going on in society to a degree that wasn't before. A hundred percent. And yet so many women find themselves exactly the way that you've just described it, kind of less satisfied. And funnily enough, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but I've seen the, the, the statistics about how many women are choosing those traditional roles in spite of having huge material success, being completely independent for a long period in their lives. And they're deciding, actually, you know what, I'd kind of like to just be a stay-at-home mom. There are a lot of women doing that now. Okay, I don't know anything about those statistics. I haven't seen any of that. I mean, I only, you know, the only statistics that I see that would relate to that are women in the 1%. But I don't think but they're that the ones who are setting the agenda for everyone else. And yet they're I choosing, don't know they're almost if like they choosing really are. this. They're like choosing this conservative life for themselves, but telling everyone, everyone else, like, be yourself, do your thing, 
you don't need a man kind of thing. But then in their own lives, they're living a completely different existence. Yeah, I, I, I actually I don't know anything about that. I mean, statistically, there are more and more, more and more uh, single women who are parents, and you know, most women they kind of have to work. Mm. So, I mean, when you have a, you know, a cohort of men who, you know, I mean, most men, they don't make enough money to support a woman staying home and kids. I mean, it's, you know, life's very expensive. And I mean, I actually think the future is single. Well, I'm happy with that because I'm, I'm single. I mean, that's, you know, I I think that there, you know, there are more and more single people there will be, you know, and the future's probably more and more child free. But that means Which to me like, is not a problem because I mean, think there are too many people anyway. But, but don't you think that means extinction? No, I do not think it means extinction. I mean, if we're not producing children, and I'm exempting you and I from this because we're clearly not in that position, if we're not producing children at replacement value, we have a society that's in decline because who's going to be paying for all I those think old that people? That you don't think that's that's I think true? that that is a very male pyramid scheme kind no, of it's thinking. No, just, it's just mathematics. Like who's it's, going to be earning the money to pay for all these people and pensions in you know, 50 years' time, 30 years' time? Well, I think maybe people have to make their own money to save up for pensions. And you know, maybe if you aren't have, don't have to spend so much money – and kids going to college, et cetera, maybe you'll save up that money. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to to look at this. But let's face it. I mean, billions and billions of people, we are destroying the earth. So we are quickly, by reproducing endlessly here, headed for sure extinction. That's what I think. I mean, this is a philosophical discussion, obviously, and we disagree. No, but I I mean, I'm curious about this because we have big families here in Africa, right? People have a lot of kids. But we're responsible for 3% of the pollution in the world. So it's not us. So who is it? I mean, is it it people who have, you know— It's the billionaires. (laughs) Is it the billionaires with their their jets or is it us in our economy class seats going to Europe for uh, the one holiday a year? I mean, I don't know if that's right. I, I just think a lot of this stuff isn't – It's it, we're told it'll make us happier. But I think there are a lot of people who are much less happy when they don't have kids and they get to a certain age and they think, well, what am I doing all of this for? Like what's the legacy? And people like you and I, are, we're proud of our work obviously. I mean you, you more than anyone. You've done the, these incredible things and you've added to – you know, we talk about philosophy. I mean you've, you've created like a branch of philosophy here if you want to be academic about it, which has become more than entertainment for some people. But in the end, there are people, not necessarily you, who will say, for what? Like, what's the point of making money, for example, if you aren't going to spend it on your kids? Like, what? what's the point I, of having I, two jobs? I know. I mean, these you are know? the exi- existential questions that people have to answer, you know, for themselves. And you, you, you would write and about I, this but, for your but characters. But the reality is... 86% of women are mothers. So we're not really in danger of women not having kids. That's would you the hazard, reality. Okay, so then would you hazard a guess that that 86% of women who are mothers are happier than the other part of that 100% who are not? Or do you think they're equally happy? No. You don't think there's a relationship? Well, you know, they've done a lot of studies and the happiest the happiest women are are single women, believe it or not. And that has been traditionally true for a very long time. And the unhappiest women are married women with kids. Hmm. So Okay. I mean when, when it so when it comes to writing And the these, unhappiest men are single men and the happiest men are married men. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I I don't know. I certainly, I don't disagree with you. I've seen a lot of unhappy marriages. And I've always thought it's better to be happily single than to be unhappily married or divorced, right? Yes, <laughs> I, I suppose so. You know, and if you I haven't think... had kids, you haven't hurt other people. 
along the way, which yes. I think is, is quite like that's a non-egotistical way to go through life if you're going to do something where, where you harm, you know, the, the idea of the, the Hippocratic Oath and do, do first you, do no harm, right? right? I mean, that's a good way to go. So when you, when you think about these things now, because you, you do, I mean, this is part of what you wrote the columns for and the fact that you still asked, is there still sex in the city? I just wonder if young women and young men today have any idea of how to have that kind of meaningful connection that we used to have. Because being single in and of itself is fine, especially if you're getting enough stimulation from friends, you have a great family, you have interesting on and off relationships or hookups or whatever. But I don't know if that's enough for some people. It's not, it's not for everyone, um, but for some people it, it may just be. Yes, I, I think you're right. But again, I, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's probably quite a luxury that we can sit here and have this discussion because, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, you know, so much about human existence was survival. Mm. And, you know, I think that that's something that we all now kind of have in the back of our heads with, you know, the climate change and, and all of this. I mean, it's, it's, you know, in pretty much the blink of an eye, we can go from having a fairly cushy life to really being in a situation where, you know, we need to survive. And I think that's something that, you know, we may be seeing more and more in the future. So, I mean, in terms of finding meaning in your life, you know, forever people have, they've had kids and they've been married and, you know, those people get to the end of their lives and wonder what the hell was it for? You know, so having kids and being married is is not really any guarantee of happiness. that, yeah. you know, of happiness in the end. I mean, you can easily feel like you could have done something really important, but, you know, being married and having kids stood in the way of that. So, you know, there are trade-offs on both sides. Well, what do you think of... And, and this is also, I mean, something controversial that people don't, don't always want to get into. But the fact that women up to very recently, you couldn't be a single woman. Like if no. you were, there I mean, was either – That's was something one wrong. of the things that you – well, I mean, you couldn't be a single person. That's one of the huge changes, that technology. But, it's, but especially has, as a woman because there were always men who kind of – could find camaraderie with other guys and still have sex with women or have relationships of, of some kind and not necessarily marry. Marriage is a social, you know, convention. But women, you'd, you'd have to be a nun. You'd be burned at the stake as a witch. Uh, you were the, the, the old widow in the town who kind of, you know, never got married. There was always some, like, there was a, there was a negative attachment to women being single in the past which I don't think there well, was necessarily for men. Uh, Until recently. Maybe not, but, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the reasons why it was very hard for women to be single was that you couldn't earn money. I mean, you know, all of these things really come down to the income stream and who has access to the income stream. And traditionally, women have only been able to have access to the income stream through men either by being married, you know, taking, you know, uh, having a father that supports them or, you know, the oldest profession in the world. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like, hey, a woman could go and be a banker. Mm. So, I mean, that's one of the huge changes is access to the income stream. And, you know, the other change is, you know, I mean, 100 years ago, you you know you couldn't really you know there was no soup for one yeah you couldn't really go to the store and you know buy food for one one person i mean even now it's that's hard to do and i wish that they would make things in smaller portions i, I, I don't but, want to cook just for me it's terrible 
know? sometimes I do cook just for me because <laughs> I like to cook. Um, but, you know, again, I think because of technology and technology tends to only go in one direction, whether we like it or not. And, you know, in the future, they're going to be more and more single people, more and more single and child-free people. Absolutely. I mean, that's already the trend in places like America, where where it seems that, that this is absolutely going to happen, whether we like it or not. And that's also something like technology goes in a direction. Um, I think it's also, it's really cool to kind of get an idea of the sorts of things that you used to write about that you think are still going on and the things that have changed quite a lot, not just for women or relationships, but even in places like New York. I mean, I certainly feel like the first couple of times I was in New York, maybe just because it was new to me, and you moved there with what, like $20 in your pocket yes. once upon a time. <laughs> it was the most exciting place in the world. Yes. And somehow the last two or three times, look, don't get me wrong, I still love New York, but it just feels like, and change is inevitable, they say. You know, someone who went there for the first time in the 70s would have like told you it was dangerous and all the rest of it. In the 80s, maybe a different vibe. In the 90s, again, the kind of stories that came out of sex in the city. And now, how do you feel about someone in New York? How do you feel about that? I, I ask myself this question all the time, and I think everybody asks themselves this question. Is it because one is older. Yeah. Cause you have different experiences. And different ages. so you have different, yeah. you know, experiences and you look at the world a different way, or is it true that the city has in some way changed and it isn't quite as exciting? And, you know, the reality is that if you are sort of looking for that excitement, it's still there. You know, I go out, I, you know, I do the fashion scene, I do the fashion shows and, you know, there are lots of young people. There are lots of really interesting people and people are, are in some ways more colorful and expressive of themselves than they ever have been. Um, it's, you know, Men are wearing jewelry and skirts and high heels and, you know, I mean, there's just such a, a, you know, huge variety of people expressing themselves and they're still passionate and they're still interesting, but one does have to look for it a little bit, right? I would say. You know, it's maybe a little bit more of an insider kind of situation. But, you know, those clubs are still there. The late night clubs are still there. You saw the, the original. drugs are still there. You saw the original it's, Studio 54, right? Yes. Wow. I mean, just tell me about that. It, it was, I mean, that that's probably the only time where I've ever felt like, you are 100% in the right place at the right time in the whole world. It really was that feeling. And it was it was so buzzy. And, you know, there was glitter all everywhere on the floor. And you would, you would enter and there was just the pounding disco music that was supposedly set at the you know, the heartbeat, and you would just, it was just so physically exciting. Wow. And it, in a way, it just really, you know, it was, it was almost a condensed version of the city itself that was very exciting. You really speak very openly, you've even done it today, about your own dating experiences, which I think is brave and it gives other people an opportunity to kind of compare their own lives and go, okay, well, either she's being so honest about this and it, you know, it's not always like glamorous stories. Sometimes it's embarrassing. It doesn't always work out, but you're very honest and open about it. You said you also have been on dates with like 25 year olds and 90 year olds. Yes. Do you think you have a type or have you learned like how to short circuit this to get what you want? 
um, make it work for you? Is there a is there a trick to it? There are probably women listening to this and guys, frankly, who are thinking, how do I get better at this? Because you sound like you're a pro. I mean, like you really know your stuff. And even though you're happy to admit the uh, the, the failures, you also have successes. Well, I, I mean, my attitude is... I mean, first of all, I don't know if I'm, and I have to be honest with myself, I don't know if I'm really looking for somebody. Um, you know, it's like I Is have- it just amusement? I have, well, I have my own house and I have my own apartment. Um, you know, it's like I have my own stuff. I have a car. Sure. Um, I have a couple of dogs. <sighs> I mean- I, you know, I would love to have that, you know, that deep connection with somebody. And and I do look at people who have been married for a long time and I just think, geez, I just think, you know, don't get divorced. I mean, this is really my advice. Yeah, yeah. If you are in your 50s and you've been married to somebody for 20 years, don't get divorced. Right. Make it work because there really isn't anything so better out there. I mean, there are a few exceptions where, <laughs> you know, it's people honest. meet somebody and yeah. this and that. But it's like it's 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 very hard to recreate that 20 years of experience, you know, of knowing somebody. Um You know, I just I find people interesting. And that's maybe one of the issues. My attitude is sort of like, hey, you never know. But but it does And so sound, that's why I go it, out with all these different people. But it sounds great to me. I mean, it sounds like you're really just you're enjoying life, you're amusing yourself. And I don't mean that in some, you know, derogatory manner that the that the men that you're dating are, are just play things to you, but you're amusing yourself. You're having a good time. You're living as the millennials and Gen Z kids call it your best life, right? I, I suppose so. I mean, I could, you know, I mean, I could sit at home and I could watch TV hmm. or I could, can go out and have a conversation with somebody, which is always interesting. I, I just find people interesting. Do you change it up if it's someone in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and if it's someone in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Well, this is this is definitely one of the differences. If it's somebody in their 20s, 30s, 40s, mm -hmm. they spend a lot more time asking questions about you. And if they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, it's a monologue about them. <laughs> I mean, I have gone out with some of these men and I'll be like, they didn't ask me one question about me. Now, some women get really upset about that. My feeling is, oh, you know what? That's great. I could just, I got to sit there, had a couple glasses of champagne you know, they talked and and I didn't have to make a, a ton of effort to amuse them. But that's really one of the big differences. And in fact, in a way, the younger they are, the more interested in the like minutia of like, what's your favorite color? Or, you know, what's your favorite band? Oh, no. Now, nobody who's 80 is going to ask you what your favorite band is. No. You know, Um so that's like one of the big differences. If you're younger, you're still interested in all those details. And then for me, it's like, oh, gosh, I remember this is really fun right? telling people all of that little so, minutia. So what about um, men who are very successful versus men who are not? Because I will, I will, I'm sure that you've dated guys who are – you know, they're fun, they're good-looking, they're young, they've got energy, Men they're curious Men who are very successful, you. they don't want anybody to disagree with them. Really? That's the number one overriding thing. And what oh, is yes. The I mean, if you, like a billionaire, this is the thing about very successful men and billionaires. Mm -hmm. um, no matter 
what they've done that is morally repugnant. For instance, I'm talking about hedge funders who, you know, (laughs) buy up, you know, every small house in a neighborhood and destroy businesses, et cetera. If you challenge them on that, they get really pissed off and they truly believe that they are doing good. This is this is one of the one of the things that I've I've found that is quite disturbing. And you know, people are often very very rich because of less than you know, savory right. moral and financial practices, but boy, if you point that out to them, they are furious. They truly believe that they are doing great good in the world. And conversely, is there something that guys could do that is always a winner? Is there something that that you've always been impressed with? Maybe it's the way he uh, treats the staff. Maybe it's the um, the compliments he gives uh, people. Uh, you know, Maybe I it's mean, just like a genuine kind of friendliness and curiosity that you were talking about earlier. I, you know, I mean, it's like somehow deep down, like being a decent, nice person, I think helps and you know being critical and judgmental is not so great ugly well I, uh, one of my ex-girlfriends always used to say two things are non-negotiable to her um and i don't know whether i have these or not because she's an ex <laughs> so <laughs> kindness and generosity she said if you've got those two all the other stuff can be worked out and i i think maybe a third is a sense of humor because you have yes. to you have you can't take life too seriously right that's true. Yes. A sense of humor is wonderful. I, I think if you've got those three things, we're off to a good start. Absolutely. All right. So New York is probably one of the most exciting places in the whole world to live and to date and to meet people because you never know. You could meet just about anybody. You've met loads of really famous, important, interesting, powerful, influential, rich people. Um and that happens in New York all the time. You could go out for a, a coffee somewhere and end up in the line next to a, you know, Oscar-winning actor. It happens. It doesn't happen well, so much anymore. I, you know, I have to say that happens a lot less. Mm. I mean, that's that's one of the things that's different about New York is that it used to people used to feel a little bit everybody was a little bit more in the mix yeah. and and now it's it's a little bit you know it's sort of like people have gone to their corners you know it's like famous people really only hang out with other famous people it's a very stratified society and it's yeah. it's become more so i would say and new york is there's a class structure in New it's, York. It's, there's I mean, a huge, there's a you know, real pecking order. If you live and on the Upper East Side, it means this about you. If you live yes. on the Upper West Side, it means this. Yes, and people are always judging the minutia of people's lives. But there are some incredible lives being lived there. I mean, there, there are old ladies who are living in apartments on, you know, <laughs> Central Park South that have been there for 60, 70 years and who've seen it all. <laughs> and they have like their dogs or whatever it is. And they've just, they live these lives, which most of us will never know about. But when you knock behind certain doors in New York, you just meet these extraordinary people. That is definitely true. You, you know, all of those apartments, you never know who's going <sighs> to be, be behind those doors. Wow. And those apartments <laughs> are something else. Tiny. Well, I don't know. Some of them are pretty glamorous. I mean, there's some of those uh, buildings that have been around since 1920s, and they are palatial inside. There are a few of them left. Obviously, you are <laughs> travel in much tonier circles than I do, Garen. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's that, and then there's friends of mine. So I've got friends in New York, some who live that way. I've got other friends in New York who really are squeezed into – a smaller apartment than this studio, and that's the kitchen, the bedroom, the the closet, the bathroom, everything. And, you know, you've got to make it in New York, so it's tough, but everybody works their backsides off, and it's a serious place too. Oh, yes, you and know? people work hard. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And, definitely. and they want to live in Manhattan, but you, your rents are so high that it's, like, outrageous. 
about 5,000 a month, I think, is about average for Manhattan. And then everything, just living there is expensive. Like the, yes. the shops are expensive, the restaurants, the it's, everything, right? The restaurants are so expensive. It's really, I mean, even the wealthiest people are complaining. And, you know, once those prices go up, they're not going down. No. So, I, and I keep thinking back to Sex in the City um, because it was it, more affordable. Definitely, it, it was. But you you did a huge marketing job for New York. There. I mean, you should be given the freedom of the city because <laughs> I think you created a, a sexiness about the place that made it seem accessible and that made a lot of people want to live there. I think there are probably a lot of yes, I, particularly I think- girls who went to live in New York because they saw that and they thought. That's the life for me. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, the TV show made it seem much more accessible than it is. And that's why I say to people, read the book. The book is much darker <laughs> and the book is the reality. <laughs> well, let's just talk about your, your show. So you said that you go into, um, you know, talking about some of the behind the scenes stuff when, when it comes to sex in the city, but you've got so much material you know, you talked about the lipstick jungle, for example, um, Kelly Monica, Four Blondes. There's so many works here that you could talk about. And and I don't think it's difficult for you to stand up there and entertain a crowd. This is what you've been doing your whole life long. But it's pretty amazing that it still comes down to like love, a pair of heels, uh, a good group of friends, the sort of things that make people happy when they watch the show, when they read the book are still the things that make people happy when you're telling them stories in the one-man show. So what do you not do? What do you not tell them? What kinds of stuff do you not go into? Because those are the things that either they're not going to find entertaining or that you think are maybe a bit too dark, like you said the book is dark just now. Well, I I, I mean, originally the show was much longer. It was actually two hours when I first started developing it at uh, Bucks County Playhouse, which is quite a storied uh, playhouse in Pennsylvania outside of the city. And it was two hours and there was, you know, I think in it I talked about my mother dying, um, you know, and some more of the failures in my life, which ended up, you know, as time went on, some of those things got cut out. And interestingly, the audience doesn't miss that. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I mean, also there's, you know, there's a certain momentum to these things and, you know, you want to, you want to just keep the show going. So if there was, you know, if there's anything that sort of doesn't fit in, then that got cut out. But it's, I think the show is about an hour and 20, 25 minutes. And it, it moves along at a, at a pretty good clip. And I've had, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of men come to see the show who sure. loved it hmm. and said that, you know, they, you know, they thought they went in, you know, not knowing what to expect. And they thought that they were going to be really bored and, and they were riveted the whole time. So there you go. And you'll have to come, Gareth. I will. And and one of the things that maybe you'll tell us is whether or not there was a Mr. Big for you. That is definitely part of the show. Was there a real Mr. Big? And I tell the real story of the real Mr. Big. And it wasn't Matthew McConaughey. No, it was not Matthew McConaughey. No. Well, listen, I uh, I just love talking to you. I really could talk to you for hours because you seem like the kind of person it would be fun to go on a date with, be fun to have a coffee with, be fun to uh, gossip with and to laugh with. And uh, I'm sure you have real-life friends who are way more exciting. You had to change the names. You probably had to leave out some of the stuff <laughs> because uh, you, you do meet people like this in New York, and they really are characters. You're a character, for heaven's sake. Um, yes. I'm, I'm just blown away at how, much, at, at how prodigious you've been in your life, and you're not stopping anytime soon. Uh, no, I have a couple of other things in the works that it's a little too soon to talk about. 
That's okay. I'm not gonna. Right. I'm not gonna draw it out of you. So if you want to see Candice doing her show live, go to showtime.co.za, ticketmaster.co.za. She's in Johannesburg this weekend, Saturday the 23rd of September, and in Cape Town Saturday the 30th of September. The two shows. Book them now. You don't want to end up standing outside uh, in your heels. Is that right? And wear your Manolos. No, wear your heels. They don't have wow. to be Manolos. What you did for fashion, I mean, that's a whole other story that we don't – I mean, I'm in no position to start talking about fashion, but I know we could. <laughs> yeah, we could. We could. <laughs> Candice, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thank you, Gareth.